I don't know if I can do it, I heard over the phone. It was a Sunday morning, and I thought, great. As I go smacking my forehead in the, the sitting in my car in the parking lot. Weeks of planning. We're going to go down the tubes because my roommate had a conscience. Now, my roommate at the time was a great guy and everything like that. But the fact was, you know, I wasn't being the best friend in the world as we were playing this day out, this Sunday morning out, because I was asking him to lie while I broke into my girlfriend's house for one final picture. See, I had spent weeks breaking new ground in the idea of scrapbooking, which I had never really done before, to be quite honest. Uh, back then, I didn't know photography very well, and I certainly didn't know scrapbooking. You know, I was still kind of okay with those old sticky books, those albums where you, you tear the, um, the sticky, vel almost Velcro-type plastic off, and it just has its nails on a, on a chalkboard sound. And at the time, uh, while I'm doing all of this, my girlfriend called me up one time. She is now my wife, but at the time, she was my girlfriend. And I'm printing off pictures. I'm at the printer or something like that. And she's like, oh, yo, I got a photo printer. And I can help you out with that. She was all excited. It was a new printer she had. And I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm all right. And we were uh, doing something around her house. And I was dropping her off. And she saw a bag from the scrapbooking store in the backseat of my car. She's like, what's going on? What are you working on? Because I think at the time, even she worked at a scrapbooking store. She said, oh, I'm just messing around with a little project. No big deal. And uh, one Sunday morning, I was up, going up the stairs of the, into the balcony of our church at the time. And I'm taking these, these odd test shots of the ground of all things. You know, I didn't know photography that well, but I knew a little bit. And uh, my girlfriend was like, can I help? You know, you're, you've got a camera. You're obviously doing something with pictures. I love doing stuff with pictures. Can I help you out with this? I'm like, no, thanks. I got it. And, of course, by this point, this is, you know, two, three weeks into this whole thing, she grabs her best friend's hand, says, we're going to lunch because I got a vent about something. And she was absolutely furious with me. I mean, ready to punch me in the face. It was a good thing it wasn't until that night that I put a diamond on her finger. What would you do for love? Get a tattoo? Steal a car? Move across country? These are just some examples of the wacky things some people will do in, when they're in love. And a quick Google search uh, will show these aren't even the craziest things in the world that some people will do. But that said world, it can be a concept that incites panic, maybe even fear in the church. As we're studying, looking at how fear impacts our mission, the, the hope that we are called to bring to the world. And Paul, who we're going to look at today in one of his writings, he's often known for kind of con contrasting the Christian's way and the world's way of thinking and of doing things. Usually in terms of, he'll, he'll talk about the ways of the flesh and the ways of the spirit. And he'll compare and contrast the two of them. And maybe there's fear because the world is quite non-Christian non out there. And that's true. I mean, Christian ethics and Christian ways of doing things and thinking about things are definitely, have become a minority in the last 
10 or 20 years or so, certainly in the West at least. Maybe fear doesn't comes because we just don't understand the people that are <laughs> that are around us, our neighbors. And true, people growing up today are growing up in a different world than maybe many of us grew up in, maybe even that I grew up in. And what reached people and what connected with people 10 years ago doesn't necessarily work today. Many leaders, especially within the church, um, have tried strategizing for how do we engage with millennials. Those that are, forgive me if I'm off by a year on this, maybe 28 to 35 as far as how old they are. I was reading a post this week from a, a mentor that I follow and they were talking about reaching Gen Z, which is those that are like 18 to 23 now. And reaching or engaging with millennials and engaging with Gen Z has two totally different sets of parameters. And just as an example, uh, when we get to around 9-11 here in the United States, at least, I will often ask the question, and it's almost like from a generation previous, where were you? And almost everyone in the generation knows when JFK was shot. And where were you today kind of becomes the, the instant, where were you when you heard about 9-11? And I will ask that question, kind of pose that question, and a lot of Gen Z people answer, I was waiting to be born. And just even that realization shows just how different the world is that different people are growing up in within the world. And the differences can sadly get the church just throw up their hands. And sometimes, dare I say it to our own shame, we get dismissive of those who are still growing up. You know, it's not an 18-year-old's fault that they're only 18 and they're still learning how to, well, just growing, just maturing. But as one writer says, dismissiveness doesn't build disciples. And yet, what does Jesus tell us in his last words that he's going to give to his, to his disciples, who will eventually be the, the core or the catalyst that explodes into creating the church? He says in Matthew 28, 19, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Make disciples of of all nations, make disciples in the world. How do we do that? What, or more to the point of what we're going to explore here, why do we do that? Because for good or for bad, because Jesus said so, doesn't really compel us much anymore. I mean, that, as I said, kind of opening things up this morning, um, duty doesn't quite sway the way maybe it did two generations ago. But the good thing is, Paul doesn't leave us hanging. Maybe he knew how, how the world was going to be 2,000 years after he wrote this. But he gives us verse 14. Out of, this is 2 Corinthians 5, 14. We're going to explore the rest of this chapter and then a little bit of uh, 2 Corinthians 6. He says, For the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Or the way the NIV puts it, for Christ's love compels us. Compels us to what? Well, see what Paul calls us in verse 20. I'm kind of skipping around a few verses because there is so much meat in this passage that I want to try and uh, 
draw together the theme to, to make this make sense. So I'm going to go straight to verse 20 here. Uh, so we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. See, love compels us to our mission to be ambassadors. It's the only place in Paul's writings, and Paul wrote a lot, where Paul refers to us as ambassadors. In fact, the only other time it comes up in the New Testament, he's referring to himself, and that's only once. So so take peace in this unique part of the role of being an ambassador. And hopefully this gives you some peace about it. At least maybe it'll at least put some context to the idea. Remember that in our political systems, in our um, foreign policy systems, an ambassador doesn't live in their own country. An ambassador lives in the country that they are an ambassador to. Like if we have, say, an ambassador to, um, to Mozambique, the ambassador lives in, the United States ambassador lives in Mozambique, doesn't live in the United States. Maybe we're not supposed to feel completely at home in the setting where we're called to be an ambassador. C.S. Lewis speaks of, evi- <coughs> speaks of evidence that we were created for something more than this world offers. But you know what? While we're here on this earth, we're called to be representatives of Jesus in a world he loved enough and chose to die for, to give his life for. See it in this, in verse 18. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. See, God happens to be in the reconciliation business. And here's the thing. Often that we have probably have to remember, especially in this time, especially in the midst of what our country is preparing for as I, as I record this, reconciliation beats out retaliation. Reconciliation beats out retaliation, especially in a world that is increasingly polarized, especially in a nation that is increasingly polarized, where fear sells, where we think we know all about a person just by which side of the aisle they sit on. And when we engage with those who are different than us, who think different, who come from a different background, who just plain old experience the world in a different way, not only does it become a chance to be a part of the church's mission of sharing hope with the world, as Jesus and Paul say that we're called to do, but it helps us to be a to become more like Jesus ourselves. So how do we do this, practically speaking? I mean, if Jesus' love compels us to be his ambassadors, and again, this is Jesus' love that compels us, not some sense of duty. I had said in a, a previous message, I think when I was talking about Zacchaeus, that Zacchaeus was loved into life change, not judged into it. He wasn't dutied into it, to connect it here. If Jesus' love compels us to be his ambassadors. And if experiencing, if you have experienced Jesus' love in your life, I'm guessing I don't have to make a big case that his love is compelling. When we look at the story of how he demonstrated it, how do we play this out? How do we show Jesus' crazy love for other people? Well, if you want a deep dive into the idea and some practical things, 
hit the worship archive that's on our website. It's maybe about two-thirds of the way down. I think it's a message archive or worship archive, something like that. And check out the Us versus Them series that we did a few months back. I think it was back in July that we did that series where we really dive into how to engage with people who look at the world differently and how and think differently, maybe even come from a different place than we do. But there's a practical step, I believe, that comes out of verse 16 of the passage that we're looking at today. Let's check it out. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know, we know him no longer in that way. So what would be a human point of view that Paul's talking about here? A human default, if you will, when we're looking at somebody is, what's different about us? Can I trust you? Or are you a threat? And as I had said in that series, uh, Us Versus Them, these questions had a place in our developing civilization as we were learning how to do, how to do civilization at all. But what if we put a stopgap in there? And see, see where Paul goes in verse 17 as this thought continues. So if anyone is in Christ... There is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. Think about this way. Here's kind of where that stopgap comes in. What if we saw a person as God sees them? As a potential recreation? Here's an example. Um, We might look at (laughs) a piece of wood and think, wow, this is just a piece of wood. You know, you could, it's a, dime a dozen at a junkyard sort of thing. But a sculptor sees a piece of art. A sculptor works to chip away the stuff that doesn't belong, revealing their vision in the world, to take something like this and turn it into something like this. Similarly, I believe God saw what the recreation would look like. And, and calls us to try and see a glimpse of that as well. As John says in 1 John 4, this is 1 John 4, 19, he says, We love because he first loved us. That God, that Jesus saw the potential recreation in everybody and then made the move to make that happen. That it wouldn't just be this, it wouldn't be this unfinished, raw, lumber, it would be a work of art, recreated, beautifully made. So when we see somebody, or anytime we see somebody who perpetuates that idea or gives us a reason to maybe fear the world, tell yourself three words, created by God. Whatever they may display on the outside, however their personality may come across or their their image or their, or their first gut impression comes across. There is God's image at the core of who they are as a human being. And last, take peace in these last two verses that I want to hit uh, from 2 Corinthians. This is the the opening of uh, chapter 6. As we work together with him, we urge you also not to accept the grace of God in vain. For as he says, at an acceptable time, I have listened to you. On a day of salvation, I have helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. See, now is the day of salvation. With a hope like that, 
What will you do in love? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for loving us, for seeing in us what the recreation would look like, even if we didn't know it yet ourselves. Thank you for demonstrating your love, even when we didn't want it. Even when we were your enemies, you still loved us enough to go to the cross for us so that we could have life in you. Help us, because of that love, to have the courage through your spirit to be able to share that hope with those around us that you have put into our presence. In all of it, may you be pleased. All this we pray in your name. Amen.